Welcome to show 43 of the C-Suite podcast being recorded in London at the Homes Report's fourth Into Innovation Summit, which is billed as exploring the innovation and disruption that continues to redefine influence and engagement. My name is Russell Goldsmith. I'm going to be chatting to a few of the speakers from today's event, the first of whom is Gareth Hopley, Head of PR and Communications at Pizza Hut Restaurants in the UK. Welcome to the show, Gareth. Thanks for having me. Uh, no, that's a pleasure. Now, uh, Gareth, you've just been part of a panel discussion that was talking about purpose-driven brands in an era of PR nightmares. and. Uh, so just for the benefit of the listeners who haven't had the pleasure of being here today, uh, could you just give us an overview of what was being discussed? Sure. We just went through um, a panel discussion around brands who have a purpose behind what they do, um, how they find that purpose, where it originates from, um, and whether you need to start with an internal purpose that you can then use as external marketing, or whether uh, agencies can help you find that purpose um, to give you a reason to connect with your customer base. Uh, sure. And I think it was very heavily agreed that uh, you need to start with an internal purpose, um, which helps define who you are, which comes from internally, which you can then use externally to connect to your, to your customer base. Well, that's, that's interesting. That, that was actually the first thing I was going to pick up on, actually. It's one of the things that, that you were talking about in there. And, and shouldn't every brand's position on, on purpose you know, driven come from uh, within and not have to look at what its customers in the wider market you know, are, are, are expecting of it? I think brands have to define their own purpose to start with. Um, and I think it has to be authentic and genuine to what, to what they believe. So, for instance, our, our purpose, I suppose you'd call it, is to be the most loved place to eat and work. Sounds like a potentially corny line, but the, the motivation behind that is we're a restaurant business uh, and both our CEO, our board, myself, we all feel very strongly that we want our customers who come to eat with us to love, love eating with us, for us to be a place they would choose to come and spend their time. But we also want our workforce, our, our employees, to love to love working there uh, and to really feel connected to the business they work for and the simple belief is you'll never make your customers feel better than you make your own people feel um, and so if you don't have a workforce that loves working for you they'll never make your customers feel great but the, the sort of the broader reason for having that as a as a, a vision statement or a purpose I suppose is because we get an hour with a customer when they come to visit us now we don't know if they're going to come on the best day of their life, the worst day of their lives. Um, they could be celebrating, they could be commiserating, um, but they've chosen to spend that hour with us. We're the people they've trusted to give them the hour they're looking for. Um, so if we don't try and make that a fantastic hour and a great experience, make them love eating with us, you know, we've, we've failed. Um, and if we don't have a workforce that loves coming to work, wants to support each other and work for each other, we can't deliver that service either. Yeah. And we employ 8,000 people. You know, they spend more time with us than they do with their wives, girlfriends or otherwise. So. I genuinely think it's important that they, they love being where they are and they and they care about the business they work for. One of the things that you were talking about, talking about you know looking after your workforce and and the whole sort of purpose of, of the brand, you, you were focusing um, in the discussion about what you do with regards to mental health and partnering with mental health charities. Do you want to just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. We, um, we work with a mental health charity called Mental Health UK um, or Rethink um, and the reason we, we sort of chose to partner with those was again very much the people connection. Um, I said our, our sort of great purpose is to look after people, people are the heart of the business. And we have about 8,000 people work for us, but we also have about two and a half million people every month choose to eat with us. Now you combine that together, that's an awful lot of the population. And there's, a, there's some sad statistics that one in four or one in three people in the UK suffer from some sort of mental health issue or impacted by mental health issues, which means you know a lot of people who touch our business at some point in their lives are going to experience trouble in that area. So 
we wanted to create an environment and a culture internally as much as anything else where people feel supported, they feel they can connect with each other. We train our managers in a way that they can recognize when our team members need help, they can empathize, they can um, show compassion for the people they work with and create an environment really where all of our team members feel they can put their hand up and say, you know, I'm struggling, I need, I need some help. And, and so they don't feel judged and we can help them find that, the assistance that they need. And it was a natural fit for us with the, with the purpose and the brand of our brand and our, our vision as a business. Um, and I think all of our employees have reacted really well. They're very glad we support it. We have a lot of internal um, chat and discussion on our internal social media network around how we can drive that forward and create a better culture. And I'm very proud that we do support it. Can you talk about some of the programs that you put in place to help um, you know, train your managers and, and, and staff in, you know, to, to handle that kind of situation? Yeah, we've taken training. You can go two ways of training, I think, in a brand like ours. You can, you can technically teach them how to cook a pizza, how to make it, how to put the ingredients on top, how to cut it, how to put it on a plate and serve it. Um, that's very functional training. Where We've gone a, a step further. We've tried to have a lot of emotional and behavioral training. So with our managers, we have a program which teaches them about leadership, but importantly, how to recognize how their behavior impacts the behavior of those around them, how their behavior can shape and impact the lives of the people around them, how they feel in the workplace, how they can empathize and connect better with their workforce. So they create an environment where team members feel supported, but also so you have a, a better team environment, which you know, ultimately means you're gonna deliver a better experience. If you're, you'll never make your customers feel better than your own team. If your team feel great, they'll hopefully deliver a great service. And you know, the whole thing is self-fulfilling, really. Sure. Have you got any, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you can, but can you share any examples of how that's impacted on any individuals? Not obviously necessarily sure. naming names. I, I won't names, use names. No, yeah, of course I, not, I won't no. name drop, but we do have um, one team member who was a manager or management level, not a restaurant manager, but uh, a manager within one of our restaurants. Um, his entire life he'd suffered or been impacted by mental health condition, um, which he was fully aware of. And he noticed the stress of being a manager in a restaurant because you know, let's face it, you can run a, a team of 30, 40, 50 people in our restaurant responsible for multi-million pound business effectively at a very young age. Um, and the strain of that was starting to exacerbate his, his situation. He felt he could put his hand up um, and say, help me, please, um, which we obviously were more than happy to do. He took some time out to decide what was important for him. He came back uh, as an ordinary team member when he felt ready. And the team around him, his manager, the area manager, the regional manager, have all helped him feel comfortable to the point where he's rejoined a management training program. And, and I'm sure if he was here, he'd say part of that was because he felt he could say, help me. Uh, and he felt he could put his hand up and say, look, I'm struggling without the fear that he was going to be judged or, or treated badly. Yeah, and, and I'm very proud of that, to be honest. No, it's excellent. And, and, and I guess, as, as you mentioned before, in terms of the number of staff that you have working for you, you get things right internally. You've got 8,000 plus advocates to help deliver that, that you know, your, your purpose-driven messages. Yeah, at the end of the day, your customers see your team members. That's, that, they are your marketing, really. I mean, you can, you can create shiny TV ads and all sorts of other brand messaging, but the reality of a, of a restaurant business is your business, the face of your business are the people who work in it. And you can have a head office full of very smart, creative people, but the reality is day to day, the people who your customers see and who serve them their food are the face of your brand. They're the memory that your customers take away. They're the reason they're gonna come back. We, we all have been to a restaurant where we've had a bad experience. Nine times out of 10, it's because of the service. You know, the food you kind of accept could be an off day. You know, we aim to not have an off day on the food, but you always remember the service in a restaurant. And so 
creating that environment where you have great service, where your, your team members want to care, they want to do a great job, I think is vital to the success of any restaurant business. Pizza Hut in the UK has gone through a couple of changes of ownership over recent years. What I wanted to ask you, sort of, you know, following on from everything we're talking about here, is how, how has the culture changed and the focus on this whole area that we're discussing developed in, in that time, would you say? I think one of the great strengths of Pizza Hut is that culture has always sat there. I think that's one of the great pieces that has ridden throughout good times, bad times, and any kind of change. So when we, when the restaurant business went through what was effectively a sort of a rebrand and a relaunch about five years ago, we call it a re-image program. One of the great strengths which we based that on was this sort of internal culture um, and this people first belief in culture. So we created new menus, new restaurant assets, and all those things that look shiny and very attractive to a customer. But what was always at the heart of it was service. And that was the one piece which I would say, even when the brand maybe wasn't at its strongest sort of 10 years ago, that was the one thing you could always say, that's our strength. That's the skill we have, is we have team members who care and want to support and work for each other. And that was the big thing to protect. You know, how do we, how do we make sure that stays the heart of this business? Yeah. So yeah. everything else changed around that was to protect and grow that rather than having to change your culture to support what you wanted to do. Excellent. All right. Well, it's uh, it's, it's quite noisy here. Everyone's about to uh, to head back into the uh, to the next section. I've uh, I've got one um, question uh, left to ask you, Gareth. It's just I, I covered the the topic of purpose-driven campaigns recently on Show Forty One uh, with Emily Colker of Pearson. Emily actually talked about their project literacy campaign, which for anyone listening who hasn't heard that interview yet, I'd encourage you to go back into the archive and, and do so because she was really inspiring to listen to and, and passionate about that cause. But Gareth, what what I wanted to ask you was if there were any campaigns outside of your own work at, at Pizza Hut, of course, that, that you've seen and thought, yeah, that really makes absolute sense, you know, for that brand to be involved in and has inspired you in, in some way. Yeah, I think um, the campaign which I've seen recently, which I, I absolutely loved, was the recent uh, Heineken campaign about uh, the sort of the bigger world. It, there's a lot of similarities, I think, in what they tried to do and some of the stuff we've just talked about around what I see as our purpose. Um, the, 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 the viral ad or the online ad where they had strangers in a room um, they were given no background about each other. They had to complete a task, um, and they built a bar. Um, like you know, as in restaurants, connect people. I think you know, going for a beer in a pub also does the same job. Um, and then they were each shown videos of the other, um, where they um, found out they had quite opposing and contrasting and quite strong views, um, and they had the option to stay and talk it out or, or to leave. And obviously, they all chose to stay and yeah, talk it out. But I think the way they shot it, the way it was filmed, the way it was delivered, really, I thought felt very genuine and, uh, and I felt quite hooked to the end even though yeah, as marketeers you pretty much could work out they were going to stay yeah. I still actually was left thinking oh are they going to stay and uh, I thought what it was trying to communicate about you know Heineken as a brand has a broader purpose to bring people together to connect people in the world that resonates very strongly with what we believe at Pizza Hut in terms of our ability to you know people sit around a table you're not judged it's a place for all comers you can be in a suit you can be in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt it doesn't really matter who you are, you're, you're welcome. Yeah. And I think that ad capsulated that very, very nicely. And I was, I was very impressed. Brilliant. That's a good example and a nice way. Uh, I like the way you brought that back into your own uh, brand as well. <laughs> We're all marketeers. Excellent. That's what we do. Brilliant. Uh, Gareth Opley of Pizza Hut Restaurants in the UK. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. My pleasure. Uh, we're back after this quick break. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to the show in iTunes by searching for the C-Suite Podcast in the iTunes Store. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. 
Welcome back to the C-Suite podcast here at the Homes Reports Into Innovation Summit with me, Russell Goldsmith, and joining me now is the CEO of APCO Worldwide, Brad Staples, who uh, gave a presentation earlier this morning discussing how corporate communicators can best navigate a fake news world. So thanks for taking some time out of your morning to do this interview, Brad. Oh, you're very welcome. It's great <laughs> to be with you. Now, in the previous episode uh, of this uh, podcast series, I interviewed uh, Edelman MD for Corporate Reputation, Nick Barron, on this very topic. And the reason I mention this is because Nick made the point that he believes fake news is nothing new um, and in fact it's always been a problem and he gave the Hitler diaries and the MMR uh, controversy as two examples but he feels the bigger challenge is not so much that we don't know who to trust anymore it's more about the fact that we don't care who we trust that we're not looking for authoritative news stories but instead are looking for news stories that support our point of view and are less concerned if that story is true or credible uh, now I bring this up only because in your in uh, the description of your session in the event program it said that uh, you would set out the challenges and responsibilities that the emergence of fake news presents for corporate communicators and so it was just this point about whether this whole fake news world is something new or is just something everyone's more aware of thanks to the likes of President Trump tweeting about it almost daily so that is a very long intro (laughs) to my first question for you Brad but do you share Nick's views what's your thoughts on that you know is is this new or has it been around for ages basically (laughs) I think it's as as long as human history people have told uh lies and untruths. I mean, it's, a, it's a, the nature of, 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 of human, human beings, the way they communicate from time to time. The power and the presence of the internet and the scale and the impact of social media has meant that the manipulation of the truth now has an impact that far exceeds anything we've seen before. And it's literally changed world events. I mean, we've seen elections won and we've seen um, the, the way the world operates, impacted massively by this change. You showed some um, highlights from a, a research that you've uh, that you've just done at, at APCO um, that kind of linked into this whole uh, aspect of whether or not we're we're aware of of what's true or, or not. Do you want to just share some of those now? Yeah, well, well, I think we we asked a a significant uh, representative po- uh, portion of the population in the United States and in the UK. Uh, a series of questions about fake news and and we had some very revealing answers one of them was that there is so much news and so much information available that people don't know what to trust I I think they do want to trust the news and it's clear that amongst that that group that we spoke to um, everybody trusted traditional media more than social media but the 18 to 34 year olds were twice as likely to support social media output than those over 55. So that's quite, that's quite powerful. But when it comes to being unable to distinguish between fake news and real news, the very significant proportion in the US, 72% agreed with that statement that they couldn't distinguish between the two, and 67% said the same thing in the UK. Let's um, let's go through some of the things that you talked about in, in your uh, in your presentation. You, you highlighted three key players in this whole area who defined who, who you defined as the instigators, the disruptors, and the beneficiaries. I, I thought it'd be good uh, just for the benefit uh, for this podcast, you know, um, if you could just talk through each of them again and and how they all fit into this area of this uh, fake news world. Yeah, I think I made one uh, point that perhaps not everybody's going to agree with, but it struck me that um, Julian Assange. Um, and, and Edward Snowden represent a, a movement, an, an aggressive movement for transparency, for clarity, for putting data and information out, uh, unencumbered to, to, to the world at large. Um, and 
their choice to disaggregate traditional media that would validate that information, that would give that editorial authority to what they were saying, um, paved a way, I think, for uh, what we've seen now, which is a, a, a gap emerging and an opportunity em emerging for those who will put out disputable data as, as news. And I think um, that, 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 that group of instigators created a sense that to get facts, you don't necessarily go to trusted publications, mm -hmm. trusted media that we've all turned to uh, in, in the past. The disruptors that saw that opportunity, the likes of Steve Bannon, those that supported Donald Trump's campaign and have, have driven a whole movement of fake news, um, they, they've been able to capitalize on that moment because there's a hunger within the population at large to hear what you want to believe back in an echo chamber that's created by like-minded people. And I think clearly the beneficiaries um, have been the politicians. Yeah. And it's not just Trump, but it's also Putin, it's Xi Jinping, it's a whole host of these populist kind of new nationalist leaders that have either managed the media, they've, they, 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 they've di disaggregated the, 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 the media, or, or, or they've just chosen to, to ignore the traditional media and, and preferred to work with, you know, these the, the, these are the social media platforms. I, th I thought it was interesting when you shared the stats. You, you touched on this um, just just earlier about you know whether or not people can tell the difference between what's fake and, and what's real, or, or they think they can. Sorry, but then when you actually tested them, there were some very different results. Yeah, it was extraordinary because we asked Americans and Brits could they distinguish between fake news and and the truth, and confidently, 69% of the American public said that they could distinguish between the two. And a little less confidently, 53% of the Brits said that they could distinguish between fake news and, and the truth. So we gave them some data. We gave them some fake news coverage, and then we gave them some, you know, some, some, some truthful coverage. And ironically or interestingly, the Brits were better at identifying the difference than, than the Americans were. Um, going back to the title of, of your talk then, what are the ways that, that corporate communicators can navigate this fake news world? I think with caution, with, with caution. I, I, I think there is a need to be alert, aware, informed, to muster all the resources that corporations have inside their communications departments using their agencies and, 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 and others to make sure they've got the ability to engage quickly from a position of authority and to rebut fake news stories when they, when they appear. Uh, they have the resources at their disposal. They probably have a corporate website. They probably have other social media platforms, and, and they're going to be the first place to go to. So I think being be, being alert and being aware and being able to move quickly is is crucial. Okay. So final question to you, Brad, and and this is sort of like general both for you, but also the, the business that that you run. Does the current climate worry you at all? You know, with respect to your role, but also obviously, APCO as a as a communicator. So, so we're a firm that's 30 years old that started out in Washington. And our, a lot of our work is for corporations facing challenges and changes that they can't get to grips with. But they're unfamiliar, either unfamiliar markets or un unfamiliar dynamics. So the fake news aspect creates opportunity for us in terms of our business. Uh, I guess what concerns me is whether or not we're giving the right guidance and the right advice to the client in that moment and in that context. Because you can look back at what others have done, but in that moment, there's a very nuanced and thoughtful approach needed. 
if you're going to help a corporation to deal with the kind of challenges that fake new news create. It's an interesting area and one I'm sure we'll be revisiting on the uh, podcast many times. But for now, Brad Staples, thanks for joining the show. Thanks a lot. Absolute pleasure. Uh, we are back for our last interview with Matt Battersby of H&K Strategies after this. Capstone Hill Search are global recruitment experts for the public relations, public affairs, corporate and digital communications industries. We are the only recruitment partners to the PRCA in the UK, PR Council in the USA and the ICCO's endorsed recruitment partner internationally with offices in London, Melbourne, Sydney, as well as New York, covering the UK, Europe, continental USA and Australasia. Whether you are looking for a new role or have a role to fill, get in touch at capstonehillsearch.com. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, and joining me for the final interview from the Homes Reports into Innovation Summit is Matt Battersby, MD of H&K Smarter at H&K Strategies. Um, and now Matt's just been talking about applying the science of human behaviour to the art of communications. But before we get into the meat of your talk, Matt, do you want to just tell us a little bit about H&K Smarter? Yeah, sure. Hi, Russell. Um, HK Smarter is the specialist behavioural insights team that we've created within Hill and Knowlton. So we're a team of behavioural scientists and researchers who work with our, our clients to use behavioural science to solve problems, to uh, create communications which are smarter and more effective. Is it worth giving a little intro to what behavioural uh, well, science behavioral is? Science is? Sure, yeah. Well, for me, behavioural science is uh, the intersection of economics, psychology, neuroscience and sociology. It really came out of economics, I would say, a few years ago when economists started to look into their models and start to question why they weren't always working as they should do, why the predictions they were making weren't always correct. And obviously, I mean, one of the reasons for that is, is that they're based on an assumption about human behaviour, that we're all perfectly rational, we all go around our, through our lives maximising our utility. But when you look into psychology, sociology, etc., you find that's not how we behave. And therefore, behavioural science is all about really understanding uh, what we do, why we do it, and how we influence it. Excellent. Um, so let's talk about... Um some of the things that you presented on today, starting with the, the two systems of, of how people think, because I thought that was quite interesting. Okay, yeah, I mean, uh, system one and system two, it's commonly accepted that the, way to the best way to understand how we think is that we have these two systems operating in our brain at any one time. So system one is your quick, more emotive, um, more unconscious way of thinking, and I always describe this as your, like your Homer Simpson type brain. And then you have system two, which is your slower, more thoughtful, more reflective, more classically rational way of thinking, and your kind of conscious, uh, conscious way of thinking. Again, describe that as like your Sherlock Holmes type thinking. Um, Two points about that is one, you use your system one, your uh, your Homer Simpson thinking much more than you think you do. The vast majority of your decisions are system one, but also using your system two is effortful. So it takes mental and physical energy to use system two. So if you can, you'll avoid using it and save it for something where you really need system two thinking. Can you can you give any examples of how this kind of thinking can be brought into into a campaign that you know that actually alters people's behaviour? Yeah, so I mean maybe if I start with an example of one of my colleagues um, and work he's done at the NHS. So one of my colleagues in the team set up uh, and ran the behavioural insights team at the Department of Health and then the NHS. And one of the areas they applied uh, behavioural insights into first was getting people to sign up for the organ donor 
register. Okay. So classic example of uh, intention action gap. 90% of people, I think it is, say that they would, uh, they support donating their organs. Less than a third of people actually do. So what their behavioural insights team there did was, well, let's look at the messaging that we use to actually get people to sign up for organ donation. Uh, and your typical message will like appeal, you know, lots of emotional, visceral images about kind of, you know, organ donation. Uh, but they looked at different psychological triggers and found out that actually reciprocity, uh, the behavioural insight, which is really we're all hardwired to give and take. If someone does something good for you, then you want to do something good back. That was actually the most powerful message to use in organ donation. So the message of um, if you wanted an organ transplant, would you have one? If so, give to others. That was much more powerful than any standard messaging. What were the other ones that they compared that to then? So they used other messages that were informed by behavioural insights. So social norms. So by saying thousands of people every day sign the register, they tried positive framing. So um, you could save or transform up to nine lives. They used negative framing. So every day three people die because of lack of organ donors. So each message had a different uh, psychological trigger behind it. Right. And what they were then soon doing was seeing which ones were most effective. And that's a really key point because so often as communicators, you know, you might be in a messaging session thinking about what message might appeal to your audience. Often that messaging session is three or four people in the room thinking, what do I think would work? Yeah. What would convince me? And what behavioural science does and what that's a great example of and why it's become such a kind of classic example is if, if you actually apply scientific thinking, you might get different solutions, different messages to the ones you might have come up with otherwise. So, so we've got a timely challenge coming up non, not long after we're recording this interview yeah. um, that I would say needs a huge behaviour change and, and that's getting younger voters uh, to, to the polling booths here, mm. here in the UK. Uh, so June the 8th, the, the general election, not, lo not long now. How would you go about achieving that? Yeah, well, I mean, actually, do you know what? There's some great research uh, looking into kind of getting out the vote. Um, it's one of those classic kind of behaviours, you know, how do you actually get people out on election day? I think the most interesting stuff is, um, say you've got a group of people who've said they are possibly, probably going to vote. So say you're the Labour Party at the moment, you have a list of people you think, it, well, said they'd probably vote for you, but you're just not convinced they're actually going to get out there on the day and do it. Your standard approach would be you might ring them up on the day or the night before and remind them why they love Jeremy Corbyn or why they hate Theresa May or tell them that, you know, your vote's important, every vote counts, we need you. Um, those are standard messages, but what some of the science suggests is you should take different approaches. So rather than tell them that their vote counts and it's going to be really close, tell them that you use the social norm, tell them that lots of other people are voting. You know, polling, there's big queues down at the polling station. This is a movement, you know, be part of something. Um, but secondly as well, don't ask them if they're going to vote today. Ask them if they're going to be a voter today. So use the noun rather than the verb. Because right. if someone has said to you they're possibly, probably going to vote, then you can assume that they see voting as part of their identity. And particularly with young people, if you can appeal to their sense of who they are, rather than what they do, that can be even more powerful. It's much harder not to be something than it is not to do something. Have you actually seen that in practice? Yes, yeah, so it's been used, I mean, um, quite a lot of research being used, um, it's been done in the US, uh, applying that. Um, you're starting to see, I mean, political communications is one of the areas where behavioural science has been used uh, quite quickly. In other areas as well, I mean, for the getting out the vote, getting people to make a plan on the day. You'll see all parties do this now. When they send you an email or come canvassing, they want you to make a plan for election day. So when are you going to vote? What happens if it's raining? What happens if you can't catch the bus? 
because the science shows if you make a plan, you're much more likely to stick with it. Sure. So just going back to what we were talking about with the organ donors and then obviously, you know, with the, the up and coming election, how would you apply all that to... PR communications in general? Yeah, it's a good question because a lot of what we're seeing is you know, research and insights coming from academia or coming from other industries. We have to think, how do we apply this to PR as an industry? I would say there are two routes, really, and I call it better and different. So uh, how can we apply behavioural insights better, more scientific thinking to the kind of questions we already get asked by clients? So how can we come up with better communication solutions to the type of challenges they already ask us to solve? Uh, then second, it's like, how do we answer different problems? So um, a great example of that is a project we're work- we've been working on recently about how do we use behavioural science to improve the communications in your job adverts to attract more talent? So how do we change the wording and how you describe yourself as a business to get more recruits in? Not a classic um, challenge you come to a PR agency for, but by applying behavioural insights to our communications advice, we can tackle any uh, challenge that we want to. So really looking for the better and different is, I think, how we'll grow with behavioural insights in PR. Okay, um, final thing I wanted to ask you, uh, and and this is actually off the back of reading your biog on the Summit website, as as I thought it was interesting to see that you've recently gained an executive MSc in behavioural science from the London School of Economics. Um, So my question is, do do you think there will be an expectation in the future for anyone looking to get into the communications industry to have some level of understanding of of behaviour science? Yeah, I I, I wouldn't say it's going to have to become like a core competency for everyone. I think what's happening is you're seeing that we need different skills within the industry. So rather, I mean, perhaps in the past we all came for kind of of similar backgrounds had similar experience and what we need now is we need a wider range of skills so if you're serious about digital you need people who really understand the digital side same with behavioral science you need specialists what we have done is brought in people who are actual behavioral scientists rather than you know trying to teach all our staff in a one-day training course and hope they become behavioral scientists i do think it will become more and more important uh, for us as an industry i don't think everyone will have to be behavioral scientists and study it but i think we will need more others uh, and, and a wider proportion across the industry what sparked your interest um it's interesting i i used to head up our financial services team right. uh, at hill and Knowlton, and a lot of my clients started talking about behavioral science because how you get people to make what seems to be rational decisions about saving more for their future or not getting into debt became a big issue within financial services. And I started looking into it because I wanted to know what my clients were talking about. But the more I looked into it, I realized it's something that I should know. It wasn't just something relevant for clients and their work. It's also something relevant for our work, which is why I went away then to to study it, to make sure I knew what I was talking about more than just reading the book. So I know I said I had the final question. This is going to be the second question after that final (laughs) question. But can you recommend if there's anywhere for people to to try and read up more about it? What what would your recommendations be? Yeah, I mean, um, there are some classic books out there. Um, I mean, people often start with Nudge, which is relatively old now, about 10 years old, but it's right. a good intro to it. I think the best book, if you're really interested, is uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's not the easiest to read. You might not want to read it on the beach, um, but it's a great one for really understanding kind of some of the core concepts. Um, if you want to know more, then some of the best unis out there are LSE, UCL, Warwick. They run short courses as well as kind of like the, the longer master courses yeah. and things. So there's lots out there if you want to learn more. Excellent. Okay, well, that was the final question. So, um, Matt Battersby, thanks for uh, joining the show. Um, and in fact, thanks to all my guests today. So Gareth Hopley, uh, Brad Staples, and of course, Matt. Um, 
Um, thanks also to the team at The Homes Report for inviting me along today and helping to organise these interviews. Don't forget that you can listen to all previous shows in the series at csuitepodcast.com, plus you can subscribe on either SoundCloud, iTunes and TuneIn by simply searching for the C-Suite Podcast. And as I always ask, if you're on iTunes, please do give us a positive rating and review as that helps the show up the business charts. You can also search for C-Suite Podcast on Facebook and Twitter where you can join in the conversation around the discussions we've had on the shows. Finally, if you want to get involved in the shows in any way, you can contact me on Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith or use the contact form at csuitepodcast.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye.